You are listening to a podcast from The National. Camel McDermott and I are in Erbil, Iraq. We've just returned from 11 days in Syria where we were covering the end of ISIS. I'm Willie Lowry, and on this week's edition of Beyond the Headlines, we'll take you to the front line where Syrian democratic forces are slowly squeezing the life out of what's left of the Islamic State. Bagus, Syria is a small farming village nestled in a bend of the Euphrates River. It's filled with palm trees and olive groves, steep cliffs surrounded on one side, and vast open desert on another. It's a seemingly random place for ISIS to make its last stand, but this is where they've been forced. So Campbell, let's talk a little bit about why that is. So if we look back to when ISIS was at its apogee in 2014, 2015, They controlled an area of territory that covered a third of Iraq and a third of Syria, roughly speaking. Um, And then gradually, over the past few years, a coalition of local forces backed by the United States and a global coalition have been battling ISIS, first in uh, making advances in Anbar province and Iraq. Meanwhile, the... uh, Syrian democratic forces in uh, Syria have also been uh, slowly gaining ground uh, against ISIS. So we saw the major battles play out first in uh, Iraq, in um, places like Ramadi and Fallujah, um, Beji, the oil refinery there, and then later um, the battle for Mosul, which was uh, an immense undertaking by uh, the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish Peshmerga. It was the biggest military operation in Iraq since the uh, US invasion in 2003. That battle lasted for nine months and that was some of the most intense urban fighting seen in the world since World War II. Um, And I think from the point of view of ISIS that was probably one of the times where it uh, really kind of broke the back of the group. After that, they made uh, pretty swift gains across Iraq, clearing up pockets of ISIS territory. And that left the group uh, operational in Syria. A lot of people fled from Iraq with ISIS back to Syria. And then since the end of last year, the Syrian Democratic Forces have been... um, They launched an operation to clear Deir Ezzor province. And so the Syrian Democratic Forces are a uh, Kurdish-led group backed by the United States who have uh, made um, alliances with local Sunni Arab tribesmen. And, um, yeah, they've been fighting down Deir Ezzor, down the Euphrates River now for about five months. And uh, this has left ISIS corralled in this small area that you were talking about. And um, over the last month... There have just been thousands of people coming up of there, far more than anyone anticipated. We're speaking to NGO workers who were saying that they were told to expect around 7,000 people to come out of the Hajin pocket, which was the, the broader area um, before this current operation about a month ago started. But since then, they've had about 45,000 people come out of there, which has surprised just about everyone. And now what we have left is uh, the last kind of dregs of uh, this group's committed uh, fighters and followers 
corralled in this very small area, which we got to see from afar while we were in Syria. It's been described as being about 700 meters squared, but to, to look out over it, um, it probably resembles something like uh, seeing a large music festival. Um, there's clusters of buildings, there's a lot of vehicles, and then there's tents visible, and they've dug down into the ground to take shelter from airstrikes. And, uh, I mean, despite the size, it's still remarkable the number of people that have been coming out of there. Yeah, absolutely. And we were there on Saturday, March 2nd, when the Syrian Democratic Forces launched just an incredibly powerful attack on, the, on that space. They lit up the night sky and transformed this small patch of land basically into an inferno. I mean, I personally had never seen anything like it. How is that fighting different from the fighting that you saw in Mosul in 2016 and 2017? They, they both uh, have some, uh, some points in common. Um, both the Iraqi security forces and the Syrian democratic forces have relied heavily on coalition air power. So driving through some of these villages where fighting has taken place, it's a... Uh, quite a distinct kind of landscape. A lot of, um, a lot of bombed buildings has, has been the main sort of damage caused. So airstrikes, um, you know, uh, planes flying, artillery, rockets, um, gunships, helicopters, that kind of thing. And uh, probably less, um, less visible damage from the small arms fire. But there's also been some noticeable differences. Um, I covered the battle for Mosul uh, throughout that period, and um, one of the first things you notice that the people coming out of Baghuz, they look like ISIS supporters. In Iraq, no one was coming out willingly identifying as an ISIS supporter, so women were not wearing the full niqab, um, everyone had distanced themselves from the group, and I think it's fair to say that few of them were actually committed ISIS supporters, whereas that's not been the case. What we've seen people coming out of Baghuz is an amazing number of foreigners, um, overtly hostile open, often to journalists, um, often refused to talk, um, but you could tell from uh, their footwear, the, the kind of style of backpacks and stuff they carried that a lot of them were probably Europeans, um, a lot of people from uh, Central Asia, Indonesia. It was pretty interesting, right, because, you know, a lot of the men just seemed kind of broken and defeated, while the women were much more defiant. Why do you think that was? I think the men were probably a lot more concerned about the fact that if they uh, acted out of line, they would, could expect uh, you know, some pretty harsh treatment by the SDF, whereas the women were aware that you know, they were not going to be at least you know, physically harmed. And so it certainly looked like you know, the future of this group is... Uh, largely in the hands of uh, women now. You know, the men have been carted off to prison, whereas the women are put in camps um, where some of the more hardcore ISIS supporters have, like, basically set up kind of networks of, of their own kind of camp management. They're keeping the kids out of the education programs provided. They're kind of enforcing women to keep wearing the niqab and keep the ideology alive. I think another thing that um, really stood out to me that was different about this campaign was in Iraq there was not a lot of mercy shown towards ISIS fighters. There was a lot of uh, 
summary executions taking place. You didn't um, see that so much, well, at all, um, with the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, some of the leadership we interviewed um, spoke more about reconciliation and uh, how they're going to try and manage these areas that did support ISIS before. In Iraq, we just saw a mass campaign of retribution. Um, so at least in Syria, they're kind of paying lip service to the idea that if peace is ever going to return to these areas, there's going to be need to be some way to, uh, you know, distinguish between those who joined or supported ISIS out of opportunism, those who were, you know, committed hardcore ideologues, and you know, those who may have been, you know, kind of uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that said, you know, they're well aware they've got a really serious problem on their hands. They've got overflowing camps and prisons, you know, which, as we mentioned, have far more people in them than they expected. They're not currently getting a lot of interest from uh, many Western governments to take back their citizens. Um, and it basically appears there's not much of a plan for the future for what to do with these, uh, these people who joined this group and um, you know, how they're going to prevent this group just metastasizing back into an insurgency, which it's already done. You know, one of the things that everybody we spoke to seems to agree on is that while ISIS is essentially defeated from a land perspective, its ideology certainly still persists. And Deir Azor, where we were, is littered with sleeper cells. How does the SDF and the international community handle that? Yeah, this is a real challenge. And, um, you know, one of the things I was curious to ask people about was, you know, whether the collapse of their caliphate indicated you know, that maybe they weren't on the right path, um, you know, that the ideology they were committed to you know, was not seen favorably by, by God. Um, but uh, a lot of people didn't seem to have um, had their faith shaken by the fact that you know, their caliphate had collapsed. They, they either saw this as a test or evidence that you know they'd done they hadn't done it well enough that it was something like corruption was the reason why you know their project hadn't been uh, successful and so now a lot of them are thinking we need to lay low wait for the opportunity to uh, have another go there were a few people i think who uh, had distanced themselves from the group they joined um, we met a young belgian woman in uh, the camp, and she was one of the few people who had taken off her hijab. She wasn't wearing a veil. Oui, j'ai très très peur, bien sûr. But this meant that she faced threats from the more hardcore members in the camp. So she, you know, she was called an infidel by the other woman in the camp she was living in. Les autres, comme je ne suis plus musulmane, les autres. She told us that you know she had been threatened. You know, they would tell her they were going to cut her head off. So, yeah, it's a real challenge how to, um, you know, combat that kind of ideology. And another thing I noticed was um, what an entrenched victimhood mentality a lot of these people had. In, in interviews we had with people, we found it quite hard to get them to engage with the idea that Islamic State had carried out atrocities. They were more focused on the number of... Uh, people living under ISIS territories who had died in coalition bombings, how 
you know, they were living, um, you know, they were starving in the Bagu's pocket. Um, so they felt persecuted and they weren't really ready to engage with some of the things that ISIS had done. We were asking a New Zealand jihadi about, you know, what was done to the Yazidi people, what was done to Western hostages who were beheaded on camera for ISIS propaganda. And a lot of these guys joined the group after this stuff happened. So it wasn't really plausible, you know, their denials that, oh, we, you know, I wasn't really aware of that. We didn't know what was, you know, Western propaganda against the group and what was real. So, yeah. Let's, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about that. Uh, Mark Taylor, a uh, New Zealand native known as the Kiwi Jihadi or the, the bumbling, bumbling as well. And, and certainly when you, you know, speaking to him, you understand how he earned those those nicknames. Talk about as you know a fellow New Zealand native as well. What was it like uh, talking to him, and what did he have to say? I mean, it was just incredibly surreal um, interviewing this guy. You know, we don't have a um, you know we haven't traditionally had a lot of uh, militant jihadis come out of the South Pacific. Um, I don't know if he was the only one to join the group, but I believe he's the uh, only known New Zealand ISIS member in a Kurdish prison at the moment. Um, and it was, you know, it was certainly instructive and uh, insightful interviewing this guy, um, but just very confusing, you know, some of the things he said. Um, he joined ISIS because he thought that would be a place where he could practice his religion, you know, the way he wanted to. He was a, a convert to uh, Islam from about... I think nearly 20 years ago now, but he still hadn't kind of uh, jettisoned all of the kind of ideas that you get from growing up in the West. So he got in trouble for geotagging some of his social media posts. And what that meant was that the Twitter you know, ramblings he was posting online showed exactly where they'd been uh, made from. And uh, once, I, you know, I think Western intelligence was aware of this, there was some talk that, you know, maybe that had enabled airstrikes on certain ISIS areas, and he'd gotten trouble for these posts and put, he said, in an ISIS prison for 50 days, and this was something he was still aggrieved about to this day, um, and he said, you know, I was trying to exercise my freedom of speech, um, which is a really strange thing for, um, you know, a guy living in a fundamentalist, um, you know, religious um, group to to, you know, be worried about, to expect to have from there. The thing was, I was kind of upset with that, I mean, because, I mean, they put me in jail for one GPS location of, uh, in Twitter, uh, back when I was in uh, Topka after I left uh, Relay Hammer. I was on holiday, and I wanted to uh, voice my freedom of speech, but it turns out that freedom of speech is not allowed in the Islamic State. The other thing he said that was a bit strange was that, uh, He'd left New Zealand because he found it intolerant, um, and yet he'd moved to uh, live under the Islamic State, which, you know, is not obviously known for its tolerance. Um, so I think, you know, this guy was quite, an, you know, an example of some of the, the lost souls who, you know, have spent their lives looking for belonging, not being accepted in their societies for various reasons. You know, he had had difficulties throughout his life, I believe, with them. Um, you know, he'd struggled with education, he'd never quite fit in, he was always looking for belonging, he was a, a follower, um, I think he probably had difficulty thinking critically for himself, and then this ideology combined with a kind of increasingly globalised world with, you know, 
instantaneous online communications enabled all you know this group ISIS to appeal to huge numbers of people across the world um, in a way that you know just wasn't possible in the past and you know exploit um, alienated individuals with feelings of grievances and um, yeah so yeah it was interesting to say the least yeah absolutely and you know I think he was someone who clearly felt marginalized at home and then you know he was somewhat of a tragic character in the fact that he clearly then moved to the Islamic State and felt just as marginalized there. Uh, I think emblematic, as you were saying, of, of lots of the, the, the characters that, that joined the group. He certainly wasn't um, the most sympathetic character. Um, he seemed very focused on you know, the bad things that had happened to him. Um, and he didn't want to take any responsibility for any of the um, actions taken by ISIS, even though this was the group he was joining. That sort of thing is not really my problem. I didn't have any concern about these situations. I don't want to see. I'm talking about myself. I'm not talking about the Islamic State. What the, the people did in the Islamic State is their problem. I have my own problems. I have to, like I talked to another journalist before, an Australian journalist, and I had to explain him the same situation. What happened there had no concern of me. So you don't feel like actions taken by the Islamic State, you have any uh, responsibility for? It's not my responsibility. I just okay. came, as I said, I came to see the situation, see if it was the Islamic State or not. But there's definitely not a lot of sympathy for him back home, just as we're not seeing a lot of sympathy for any of these people who uh, joined the Islamic State or followed someone there. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's a really I important point. As ISIS loses its last uh, few hundred meters squared of, of land, the ideology still persists and Syria and the world are, are left with serious and important questions of how to, to handle that ideology, how to handle these prisoners, how to handle these families. And these are questions that aren't going to get answered really in the near future. And I think, you know, if the, if the West was serious about, you know, not wanting to be facing ongoing attacks in the future, if they were serious about wanting to curb um, mass migration out of places like Iraq and Syria, this would be the time now to engage seriously about how these places are going to be run now that the territory has been taken back, what's going to happen to these huge numbers of people in prison, and you know, it's it's just not an option to uh, lock them all up and hope the problem is going to go away because it's not. You've been listening to a podcast by the National, and that's it for this week's edition of Beyond the Headlines. I'm Willie Lowry, and I'm Campbell McDonald. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>